Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Guarin, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and rewarding our favorite films of each year, starting in 1928. We'll discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. The amount of categories will also grow over time as a sort of tie-in to the Academy's evolution over time. With all that said, I would like to welcome my latest guest, Brits in the Oscars. He does these excellent videos on certain Oscar years and particularly best actress races. And he's just an amazing presence on film Twitter. And Brits, welcome. It's a blast to have you on here. Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, thank you so much for the invitation and, and the kind words. Really looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah. So, how are you doing today? First off, um, um, I'm I'm fine. A little bit tired. Um, I tried wakeboarding today. I wasn't very good at it, but it's still exhausting. And have to see if I if I'm able to keep it up or if I have uh, yeah. to say that's not for me. So. I think I'll try yeah. one more time and see if I'm able to, to. The problem is I cannot steer. I can only go straight ahead, but I don't know how to go right or left. So I have to see if I learn that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds stressful. <laughs> how are you? So, yeah. I'm doing good. I'm probably going to start a job um, soon. I'm not exactly sure if I've been confirmed or not, but I hope so. Like, Keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. So today we are going to be talking about the films of 1938. And I think a good place to start would be to ask, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible? This applies to any film that was released in 1938, but was not on the reminder list of eligible releases. That's difficult. I have to, I have to be totally honest. Um, making these lists of alternative Oscar nominees, it's it's it is a lot of work because you really need to watch a lot of movies, and I'm not a hundred percent sure now. I had in my nominees the Lady Vanishes from um, Hitchcock, but you told me that that's not eligible, so I removed it out again. So maybe this might be my my favorite actually of those that um, were from '38 but not eligible. Oh yeah, that that's certainly a notable film from Alfred Hitchcock, and you can definitely see a lot of his trademarks even this early in his career. And yeah, a lot of suspense, very entertaining. Yeah, it has this this um, this typical touch of suspense and humor that doesn't some yeah. Movies. So how, how about you? Um, I guess I would also have to go with, uh, well, there's Alexander Nevsky, which also wasn't eligible this year, but became eligible the next year. And that's just a fascinating, uh, epic biopic about the titular subject. 
and I just love the sets and just the prowess at hand on display. Mm-hmm. So, I guess now is a good time to announce our nominees. Starting with special effects, ending with picture. As usual, we will take turns announcing each of our nominees in each category. And as always, the guest goes first. I go first? Okay, let me just get my my list. So for special effects, um, I was actually curious if I would be able to come up with enough nominees for special effects. You always wonder when you watch movies from the 30s, but found some actually found some. So my nominees are The Dawn Patrol, Man with Wings, The Spawn of the North, or Sp- yeah, I think it's Spawn of the North, Suez, and Test Pilot. So there's a lot of aviation here, um, movies with a lot of planes flying around, um, you have crashes and all the typical stuff that you expect from these kind of war movies or movies about brave men who fly their planes. Um, Spawn of the Norse, um, you have avalanches in the, I don't know where they are, I think in Alaska, they are, they are driving around in Alaska on their fisher boats and so they have some dangers and sewers, you have, of course, everything that's happening in, you have also rock avalanches, you have sandstorms, so different things going on, so of course from today's point of view, I think okay. None of, I think none of them are too impressive, but I think for the time that the movies were made, they are all fine movies. I get that. So I only have three nominees for special effects, and part of the challenge was even being able to find credits for the special effects guys on sources like IMDb. Like, if I can't find a source, I'm not sure if I feel right nominating the film. It's just a personal me thing. So my nominees are The Dawn Patrol, Spawn of the North, and Test Pilot. And as for The Dawn Patrol and Test Pilot, they both fall into the same camp as for being aviation films. And obviously, they had to do a lot of work to make the aviation believable. Not just flying the planes, but I guess inserting the actors into the images to make them look like they're really flying these planes. And then Spawn of the North. Uh, this was one that I didn't even get around to seeing, but I know it won a special award for special effects, and I just put that in. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> No, it was actually, I think, I think they were actually all quite good. So, yeah. We would certainly get to better years for special effects later yeah. on. Yeah, I have to say, I'm also not, so these avi- aviation movies, um, wasn't a big fan in general of them, so. Yeah. It was more like, okay, they have special effects, but to be honest i don't think they had much else i think i know test pilot had Clark gable and spencer tracy but i don't know don't think that they 
really had anything to do and i know the other movies also had some big male cast but i don't know maybe one weren't really my cup of tea yeah so next is best film editing okay so for editing i have the adventures of robin hood the adventures of tom sawyer bringing up baby marie antoinette and the spawn of the north so um for the adventures of robin hood i think that's probably pretty self-explanatory um you have um the fight scenes um which are edited all quite very well you have um, this constant flow of the story um the movie constantly keeps this light touch combined with some serious moments and i think the editing does a lot of work here um the adventures of tom sawyer i think is basically the same it's this you have these different chapters um in like these different things that are happening and i think they're all very well presented um bring a baby does a great job of handling the different characters um i know you mostly think of Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, but you're also the side characters and the movie does a great job of balancing this and keeping a constant flow. Uh, Marie Antoinette um, is this big epic, but which flows very nicely and never really makes you notice the long running time, but um, really helps to, to keep the story engaging. And the spawn of the Norse is maybe a little bit my, okay, maybe a little bit like the outsider here, but watching it, I really like the editing. So there are a lot of tense moments, a lot of very, a lot of um, exciting moments in the picture where the editing has to do a lot of work from presenting different characters, um, different angles on, on what is going on to really support the tension that is happening at this point. So. These are my five nominees. Very nice. So my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, Bringing Up Baby, The Citadel, Grand Illusion, and Pygmalion. I um The Adventures of Robin Hood, I think is like you said, self-explanatory. It's just that classic action movie that has that lightness of touch, but also blends it with more serious moments and all the swashbuckling and the fighting and the grand romantic scenes. It's just so well crafted and it flows so naturally. And then bringing a baby balances all the characters and all the comedy moments and cuts it at a fast pace, but not too fast. And then The Citadel, I feel, makes the movie flow very smoothly and it never feels too slow, even though it puts a lot of emphasis on the characters and the human interactions. And I think there's this montage close to the end where Robert Donat's character is essentially in a crisis and the use of I don't know the specific term, but just to fade into separate scenes is really well executed. 
and then Grand Illusion. Again, self-explanatory. It's just an insanely well-edited war film that takes an unconventional approach to the genre. And then Pygmalion has a lot of, I'd say, dynamic editing to make the movie feel less stage-bound than it could have in lesser hands. And fun fact, before, this was edited by David Lean, who was an editor before he was a director, which is cool. It's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. I actually never thought about Pygmalion from, from a technical point of view, but now that you say it, really probably need to, to watch that again and pay more attention to that. Yeah. I do like your uh, mentions for Spawn of the North and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Those are very interesting and inspired off the wall. Choices. <laughs> yeah, I try to diversify a bit. <laughs> I actually didn't. I actually didn't expect much from the Adventures of Tom Sawyer because I thought um, usually movies with children at the center they are not my my cup of tea. But I was um, pleasantly surprised about that one. Nice. So next is best cinematography. So cinematography of this right under editing so um some familiar names here i have the adventures of robin hood the adventures of tom sawyer algier the great waltz and marie antoinette um adventures of robin hood and the adventures of tom sawyer um about the the color movies and i think of all the movies that I saw from that year that have um, color cinematography, those are the ones where I have the feeling they really use this technology and really use the color and they both look gorgeous a lot of times and really capture the action that is happening in there. Um, Algier um, surprised it has a lot of this, uh, in my unsophisticated opinion, some film noir style almost. There's a lot of work done with shadows and lights. Um, you have all these narrow passages that are in this in, in this area where Charles Boyer's character lives. Um, so the camera really captures the closeness, but without making it feel like feel like you suffocate from it. Um, the Great Walls. I think does a great job of capturing a sort of musical style. So there's a lot of movement in the camera, following dancers and capturing this, this the big production numbers that are happening on the stage. But at the same time, again, sometimes almost feeling like experimental with um, extreme close-ups. Also, again, with plays of shadow and lights on the faces of different characters. Um, feels for me very fascinating and Marie Antoinette is again the big epic um, that um, feels maybe like a default nominee but again um, there's a lot going on that the camera captures captures here um, you have these big scenes with a lot of people you have very small and personal moments and the cinematography here does a great job of capturing um, this big, big epic, but making it also very personal. 
Yes. That's a good um, set of nominees, in my opinion. So, my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, Grand Illusion, If I Were King, Pygmalion, and You Can't Take It With You. I think for both The Adventures of Robin Hood and If I Were King, they're these grand swashbuckling adventure tales, and they both make the swashbuckling look grand and beautiful. With If I Were King, it's in black and white, and I like the use of shadows and how the castle looks ominous and still inviting. And The Adventures of Robin Hood, the pioneering Technicolor cinematography. This was one of Warner Bros' first films to use the three-strip Technicolor process, and it holds up marvelously over 80 years later. And then with Grand Illusion, just the way the wide shots of the um, open locations look, it's stunning. And then the aerial scenes and the scenes inside the prison. It all looks marvelous. And then Pygmalion, again, a lot of shadows and close-ups. And there's a lot of tension between the speech lessons that Harriet and Eliza go through. And a lot of that is in the cinematography and the subtle techniques that Harry Stradling uses. And then there's You Can't Take It With You. And I always love the nighttime scenes in Frank Capra movies because they're so cleverly deployed. Like the uses of natural lights and lamps to make everything glow in the dark and James Stewart and Gene Arthur look amazing uh, amidst that backdrop so yeah yeah it's really interesting how we, we uh, agree on some movies um, but then go in directions on others but um, I think that's the, the beauty of these conversations that um, you always can learn something. And uh, as I said, I really didn't think of Pygmalion. When you think of Pygmalion, you somehow always think of the script and and the storyline. And yeah, I, I re really need to, to pay more attention to, to the technical um, features there. Somehow they didn't really jump at me when I watched it, but really need to pay more attention there. Yeah, it is easy to think of something like Pygmalion as just a acting and writing thing, but I think when the filmmaking is really good, you think of it as more than just a showcase for acting and writing, even if that is the main attraction, which it is. But next up is Best Art Direction. Just a second, where do I have art direction? Um, okay, yes, <laughs> a little bit familiar. Um, I have The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, 
Algier, Holiday and Marie Antoinette. Um, again, the adventures of Robin Hood, um, you probably don't need to say a lot. Um, it looks great, um, probably defining for these kind of uh, movies, um, still influencing the movies, if these movies on these topics that are made today, um, from the castle to, to the forest, it looks all great. Um, the adventures of Tom Sawyer, um, same thing. You have this little village, um, the inside of, um, oh, I don't know what's her name, of Tom Sawyer's aunt's house. Um, the scenes at the end at, in the cave. Again, everything looks gorgeous. Um, Algier, as I said, uh, for cinematography, you have these these, these sceneries. Um, the movie just looks very authentic. You have, as I said, it's all very narrow, but never feels suffocating. You have small rooms, narrow pathways. That um, all really help to tell the story. Um, Marie Antoinette, um, I think this one is again, very self-explanatory. You have, it looks amazing. I really wish this movie would have been made in color. Um, I just know that some of the sets are even bigger than they are actually at the real castle of Versailles and everything looks just amazing. You have these big ballrooms, um, um, the bedrooms, the, the throne, everything. At the end, you, it becomes more personal with smaller sets and cells. And again, everything looks amazing. Holiday is uh, more the contemporary nominee here, but um, I think that's a nominee where the art direction really plays an important part in the story. It's not, I think, showy art direction, but the contrast between the house um, of Catherine Hepburn's family and her small like toy room where she always retreats, where she has all the memories of her childhood and her mother, it works so well and helps so well to establish the characters and their relationships that um, the art direction here really plays an important part to tell the story. So yeah, these are my five nominees. Yes, there, there is a lot of creative movements in each of your nominees, like in terms of how they play into the story. And I really like that. So, my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, Holiday, Jezebel, Marie Antoinette, and You Can't Take It With You. I think with You Can't Take It With You, one way to overstep feeling like just a film stage play is making the sets look more cinematic and i think you can't take it with you does just that like the way the mansion looks is just extravagant and the dinner table sequences are just a lot of fun the decorations they just look inviting and warm and then marie antoinette is just this grand epic that is so well detailed and so much thought put into every angle and then when Jezebel just brings to life this old south 
in such a vivid manner. And then there's Holiday, which the Holiday House looks amazing and just like a lot of fun. And then The Adventures of Robin Hood is another self-explanatory thing here. Just the sets in the castle and the outdoors. They just look grand. Like, everything here looks fantastical. And I love the look. So those are my nominees. I, I, I like the You Can Take It With You mention. Yeah. So next is best makeup. Makeup, I just have, yeah, there it is. Um, makeup, I have um, The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Buccaneer, I think it's pronounced, I'm not 100% sure. Um, if I Were King, The Great Waltz, and Marie Antoinette. Um, so The Adventures of Robin Hood, um, yeah, again, I think pretty obvious. I don't think it's the kind of makeup that, bl that blows you away, I think, but does a really great job of establishing the different characters and just, uh, highlighting the difference between um, Robin Hood and his man and the royal characters and the soldiers. Um, the Buccaneer, I have to be honest, that's a movie that uh, I skipped through in part, but what I saw here was quite impressive. You have this story set in, I don't know exactly what time it is, I don't think it's the American Civil War, I think it's earlier. Um, but you have um, yeah, characters from America, from England, you have pirates, you have Frederick March, whom I actually at first did not recognize. He somehow looks a little bit, not too much different, but somehow a little bit. Um, so I thought quite a good job there on the makeup. Um, if I were king, um, I have to say, it really took me quite some time to recognize Basil Rasbaum, I think you pronounce him in this. Um, I think they did a great job of um, transforming him into this character, but not only him, also Ronald Coleman and everyone else. So he, again, it's a movie with the royal cast. Um, I think there were quite a lot of movies that year about somehow with royal characters. Um, the Great Waltz, um, another, yeah, I think everyone looks gorgeous in there. You have, um, again, all the characters on stage as well as the characters in the story. And Marie Antoinette, um, yeah, again, you have this huge cast. You have, um, again, characters from all sorts of different backgrounds. You have Norma Shearer wearing her hair um, as, I don't know, her hair as big as possible, um, all the other characters. So, again, great job from start to finish on that one. Those are my nominees here. Very nice. So, my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, A Christmas Carol, If I Were King, Jezebel, and Marie Antoinette. With Marie Antoinette, there's the obvious hair and all the wigs and the aging process throughout the um, timeline spanning mul multiple decades. And then there's Jezebel, which is 
just solid period makeup. Especially with the hair. And again, bringing to life this particular time period. And then if I were king, does some fun stuff to Basil Rathbone. A Christmas Carol turns Lionel Barrymore into Ebenezer Scrooge. And then The Adventures of Robin Hood. Again, it's just solid historical period uh, makeup. It doesn't necessarily blow you away, but it fits into this movie. I have to be honest. The Christmas Carol is still on my on my watch list, but um, yeah, gonna gonna try that one out definitely. I, have, I actually have to have to be honest. I actually did not know that um, there is a Christmas Carol from that year. Somehow, somehow missed that movie. But you have, I of course, everybody has watched this story in a hundred different versions. So it feels like you have. Yeah, I So next is best costume design. Best costume design. Yeah, there, there was there was a lot to potentially nominate here. As I said, there are so many movies somehow set in royal times or things like this. So I had a feeling that was really there was really quite a lot to pick here. Um, the five I agreed on in the end are The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Great Wars, Jezebel. Marie Antoinette and Suez. Um, Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, again, yeah, you have um, Flynn's iconic outfit, you have Olivia de Havilland's semi-iconic outfits. Um, beside that, you have all these um, different costumes for the characters around, for the guys around Robin Hood, um, the, the, the people who support him, then of course, everyone at the court. Um, in the Great Walls, you have, um, every, as I said so many times, everyone looks gorgeous in this. Um, Milisha Croges, I think she is pronounced, where she showcases a lot of fabulous outfits in, on her character as well as on the stage. Louise Reiner um, also gets to look fabulous in there. Um, Jezebel is again the movie where the costumes play a really relevant part to the story, obviously, with her famous red dress, which I think, if I'm correctly, in reality was black, which of course you don't see in a black and white movie. Um, but it's not only that dress, but even if you can, but you can understand why it causes such a scandal compared to all the white dresses that everyone wears. But it's not only that, it's again, all the outfits she wears and later this very, angelic white dress she wears herself and she meets um, press again and all the, her other outfits as well as Faye Bainter's outfits um, are great. Um, Marie Antoinette again is this big epic. Um, the things that Norma Shearer gets to wear in there, they are <laughs> insane. She wears so many fantastic, unbelievable outfits. Again, I really wish this would have been in color. And Suez is this kind of big um, studio production where I just think that everyone was very well made on a technical level. So it didn't look like you just had costumes put out from the um, store department at uh, whatever studio um, was making this movie. Um, Loretta Young is in there, she really looks great. Uh, it feels like there was a lot of attention paid to all the costumes that the characters wear in France, as well as everything that they wear when they are in Egypt. 
um, the difference in costumes between Annabella's character and Loretta Young's character. It was really well made, and I think this was a really, a little bit like Marie Antoinette, a really big production with, with a really big task of making it look very authentic, which I think it did. Yes, a lot of um, a lot of historical period set movies. There definitely were a lot of those in nineteen thirty-eight, and there were a lot that I could have nominated, but ultimately I settled on the Adventures of Robin Hood. If I were king. Jezebel, Marie Antoinette, and Mayerling. I think with um, Mayerling, it's just really solid historical period costuming with all the outfits and the gowns. And then Marie Antoinette, all the iconic dresses and gowns that Marie Antoinette was known for wearing, and it's period accurate, and there's so much attention to detail. And then with Jezebel, all the dresses and gowns that Betty Davis and Babe Bain to wear, and it's gorgeous. And if I were king, a lot of great costumes for swashbuckling, and then the Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn's iconic uh, costume, and then for all the various characters, like you said, and then all the gowns that Olivia de Havilland wears. It all looks amazing. And yes, Marines Wynette definitely could have been made in color, and that would have looked stunning and stellar. Yeah, I mean, seriously, and you know, Mashira gets to uh, gets to wear the most fabulous outfits you can imagine. I read yes. a story that once she attended a party while she was shooting the movie, and she wore one of her costumes from the movie, and they had to take out the doors so she would fit fit into the room. <laughs> she sounds very no Mashira. Yeah, queen move there. <laughs> so next is best sound recording. Um, so, I have The Adventures of Robin Hood, Angels with Dirty Faces, The Great Waltz, Kentucky, and You Can Take It With You. Um, again, there were, it was a little bit difficult to narrow it down to five. As I already said, there were a lot of aviation movies where you obviously have the sound. There are always a lot of musicals. I have a feeling in these years that you could include. So. I narrow it down to these five and the adventures of Robin Hood obviously has all the fight scenes and yeah and the, I think the combination of score which in this movie is so important and all the action that is taking place works very well. Um, Angels with Dirty Faces has um, these different fight scenes of course all the shootings that go on where 
sound is obviously important. Um, the Great Walls is my representation for all the different kind of musical pictures that were made that year. I decided on that one simply because I have a feeling that the music here, I mean, obviously the music plays an important part in every musical, but here you have this movie specifically about a composer and his relationship with an opera singer. So obviously music is very important here. Um, Kentucky, I included for, I think the race scenes at the end are not very spectacular, but I had a feeling that there's a lot of combination of different things, the cheering, the sound of the horses, um, the, the, the speaker who tells what is going on. So I, I had a feeling that especially at the end, there was a lot going on and um, made very well. And you can take it with you. Is maybe not, feel, maybe doesn't feel like an obvious sound nominee, but I have the feeling that this is a movie where the sound really plays a very important role of getting you into the picture. So you have um, all these different characters, all these different slightly crazy characters here who do all the different things, um, singing, dancing, exploding stuff. And the sound really helps to draw you into the action. So you never feel that you are just with one person, but you always have the feeling there's there are so many things happening at the same time, but it never overwhelms you. But you always have the feeling that you're right there in the plot with all the different characters. And in this movie, I think more than in all the others, the sound really plays this very important role of making this happen. So these are my five nominees. Nice. So my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, Bringing Up Baby, Grand Delusion, Test Pilots, and You Can't Take It With You. So, The Adventures of Robin Hood, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. Just the clinking of the swords and the fight scenes and all the... um, Just the action scenes and just the sweeping nature of the movie. And then there's Bringing Up Baby, which balances a lot of comedy and character interactions and the overlapping dialogue and making it fast-paced. Almost like a precursor to His Girl Friday, which sped up the dialogue and all the overlapping. It's just amazing and so fun to listen to. And then Grand Illusion with all the explosions and all the digging of the dirt as they're escaping the prison and the plane sounds. And then Test Pilot at its biggest selling point are all the aerial scenes. And then you can't take it with you. As you do a lot of moving around and character interactions and more overlapping dialogue. So those are my five nominees. Yeah, make, make all perfect sense. So next is Best Song. Song, oh, yeah, that's um, it was one to be honest, one of the more a little bit more difficult categories for me. I hope that they are all um, right. I, mean, I think it's always very difficult to find out if a song was really written for a movie or if it maybe had been released in some way. So I hope my nominees all makes sense. Um, I have thanks for the memory from the big broadcast of 1938, um, Jeepers Creepers from Going Places. In Between from Love Finds Andy Hardy, It Rains But What It Pours from Love Finds Andy Hardy, and My Own from The Certain Age. 
Um, I cannot say too much about them, to be honest. So um, thanks for the memory is, I guess, catchy, maybe not too, I have to be honest, I wasn't too familiar with it before. I, I think it is a well-known song, but wasn't for me. Um, Jeepers Creepers is actually a song that I know very well and that I enjoy very much. I actually, before I, um, before we, um, before I started watching movies for that year, I didn't actually know that it was from a movie. Um, the two Love Finds Andy Hardy songs, well, they are sung by Judy Garland, so you can never really go wrong here. Um, the In Between song tells a nice story and is, um, is also entertaining. When I watched the movie, I didn't think that it really fit into it that well because up to that moment, there hadn't been a song and it never really felt like a musical. So it took me some time to get into it. But um, later when she sings, it rains, but what it pours, there she sings it on a stage and sings it as part of the plot. So I thought it made a little bit more sense. And my own from that certain age, I have to be honest, I did not watch that certain age, but I listened to the song my own and I thought it was catchy. I really liked, um, oh, no, I forgot what's the, what the actor's name is, Dana, Dana Durbin, I think it is. Um, I hope it is. Um, had a very beautiful voice. It was catchy. I probably couldn't sing it again now, but I know that when I listened to it, I really liked it. Mm. Yeah, those are all fair points. So, my nominees are Now It Can Be Told from Alexander's Ragtime Band, Thanks for the Memory from the big broadcast of 1938, The Cowboy and the Lady from The Cowboy and the Lady, Jeepers Creepers from Going Places, and Merrily We Live from Merrily We Live. I just, I don't have a lot to say. They're all catchy and decent songs. They're all good. Yeah, so remember the, the I think the Merrily We Live song, I think I remember that a little bit. Uh, I think if they had maybe sung it in the movie, I might have maybe included it, but I, I think it was only in, at the beginning when they had the, the title cards, they had it for like a couple of seconds. I wish they yeah. had been maybe a little bit more, but I have to be totally honest, I did also not watch Going Places or the big broadcast of 1938, so I really, in these cases, I just listened yeah. to the songs. Yeah. So next is Best Original Score. Score, okay. This is a little bit like with, um, with song, so if you would put a gun to my head, I could probably not um, hum a melody of any of those scores, but I know that when I watched the movies, um, I wrote specifically down, okay, I really like the score. So <laughs> I would forget it. So I think my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Jezebel, Marie Antoinette, and Suez. Um, the Adventures of Robin Hood is obviously a very important score in movie history, maybe even an iconic score. Again, I cannot really remember a specific melody, but it's the kind of movie when you watch it, you really notice um, the score and you're almost overwhelmed by it. Um, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer is, 
I thought it was a nice score that um, does what it has to do. It supports the sweet scenes, the emotional scenes, as well as the scenes with a lot of tension. Um, Jezebel, I think from this one, I actually remember some parts. And again, just in general, it does a good. Is, is, is a good score. Uh, I think Maria Antonetta also remembers some parts of that. You have um, the more quieter moments at the end um, when it all becomes very devastating for her compared to this more big royal numbers at the beginning. And Suez, um, just like with um, this, uh, the costume design, it's just this big studio production, technically well made and with a score that just everything that is going on. Definitely. So my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, Angels with Dirty Faces, Grand Delusion, Marie Antoinette, and Mayerling. I think with Mayerling, Marie Antoinette, Grand Delusion, I think they all do their part to add to the mood of their respective films. Angels with Dirty Faces is a really good Max Steiner score and really amps up the sort of tragic melodrama that is essential to the story. And then The Adventures of Robin Hood, again, like you said, such a important score in film history. It's inspired so many other scores of this ilk, and it does so much to propel the romance and adventure in the movie. And I think that film historian Rudy Belmer describes it best, and I'll just say her quotes as she said, Corngold's um, score was a splendid added dimension. His style for the Flynn swashbucklers resembled that of the creators of late 19th century and early 20th century German symphonic tone poems. It incorporated chaotic harmonies, no, chromatic harmonies, lush instrumental effects, passionate climaxes, all performed in a generally romantic manner. Korngold's original and distinctive style was influenced by the Wagnerian leather motif, the orchestral virtuosity of Richard Strauss, the delicacy and broad melodic sweep of Puccini, and the long line development of Gustav Mahler. Yeah, it's probably sums it up um, great. I know that he also did, uh, did the score for Anthony Edwards. And I, again, I, I think my, 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 I don't have a very musical brain. It really takes for me a lot of some time to really um, remember music. But I also remember for Anthony Edwards that there was a lot going on. And you very often have the feeling it's more almost like an opera soundtrack playing in the background. And I remember that it was also for, for the Adventures of Robin Hood. You have the story that this score is so much in the background so you notice it but it doesn't overwhelm the story but it perfectly fits into the, the, the picture and takes its own place absolutely so next is best foreign film so best foreign film again i'm Honest, I did not watch every foreign film made in 1938. So I watched a couple and um, picked out for me um, Alexander Nevsky from the Soviet Union, um, The Human Beast from France, and The Messers and the Woman from Japan. 
Um, so Alexander Nevsky, um, I have to be honest, I'm not a biggest fan of these kind of very obvious propaganda movies. And I mean, yeah, and I don't think it doesn't matter from what from what country they are made. I mean, I understand the historical context in when when the movie was made. Um, it's just a little bit into your face for my taste, but I won't deny that on a technical level, this is an absolute marvel from the art direction to the score, to the cinematography, the big scheme of things, the big fight scenes, um, the way the movie builds tension. I mean, it is propaganda, but it is done incredibly well. It is very easy to be drawn on one side. Um, so from all these technical levels, this is really a, probably a groundbreaking movie. Um, the Human Beast from France, I found very absorbing. So I probably would need to watch it again to see if it all makes sense, if this whole psychological, um, I don't want to say hocus pocus, but the whole psychological aspect here with the main character somehow being come always drawn to wanting to kill. This all really makes sense in the grander scheme of things. But the, the movie builds a lot of tension, builds it well, has develops the relationships between the different characters very well. And at the end, when the, the main character kills um, his girlfriend, this is probably one of the most unforgettable scenes from that year, just because it's so unusually shot. It takes so long. You don't see a lot. So, so many things are happening off, outside of the camera frame, but it, is quite a shocking scene. And The Masseurs and a Woman is probably a movie I would also need to see again because it's just so unusual. Um, such a un unique story that it's probably hard to really absorb everything in one viewing. Um, but I found it very fascinating and also very engaging. And just the, the setup with these, these the blind man and the story that's going on just felt very original and and I would probably have to say that I would need to to watch the movie again also to have a more detailed opinion but um, I really felt that it deserves to be on this list. Yeah so my nominees are Alexander Nevsky from Soviet Union, The Masseurs and the Woman from Japan, and Port of Shadows from France. I think, well, Alexander Nevsky, yes, you can argue is an obvious propaganda, but I think more about how well the movie is made, and I think it is at least compelling enough on a visceral level that somehow I forgive that. And then the Masters and the woman I thought was a bit slight and kind of light on series content, but it was easy enough to watch being just over an hour. And then Port of Shadows, I think it's just a marvelous early film noir. 
from Marcel Karn. And there's just a lot of visual language going on. Uh, I, I, I watched Fall of Shadows 2. Somehow, I don't know why, somehow it didn't grab me as much as I expected it to. Maybe another one I would need to see again. But um, it's it's always great to hear then of people who who like it and to get it to get a different point of view. I thought it was I don't know what it was. It felt a little bit slow for me, and I somehow was not completely engaged with the story. But uh, maybe that's just something that you maybe the kind of movie that you need to watch more than once. Yeah, so next is Best Adapted Screenplay. So, Best Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, this um, category was somehow an embarrassment of riches because I had the feeling that almost every movie that was made in 1938 was somehow adapted or adapted from something else. Either an earlier movie, a book, a stage play, a short story, um, you name it. Um, so my five nominees are um, Bluebird's Eighth Wife, Bringing Up Baby, Holiday, Merrily We Live, and Pygmalion. Um, so Bluebird's Eighth Wife, Bring Up Baby, and Merrily We Live, they are all the kind of slapstick comedies. You have um, the some kind of wacky characters. Um, Mary We Live, I was actually surprised how obvious this is a ripoff of My Man Godfrey. Um, I mean, you even have a scene where um, the, the lost man who poses as a butler for the family um, puts, uh, throws a bucket of water on, on the daughter and she jumps up and screams, you love me, which is almost exactly from My Man Godfrey. But um, I still like the movie very much. It was one of the movies that really made me laugh a lot. A um, lot of great one-liners. Um, the wacky characters are not too much. There's always uh, a nice balance to make it not um, too exaggerated. So um, I just really enjoyed watching it. Um, Bluebird's Eighth Wife. It's a um, little bit the same. Um, the characters are maybe not as not really wacky. It's more like a kind of rom-com movie between Gary Cooper and Claudette Colbert, but. Again, um, they get a lot of great one-liners. You have David Niven as a comic relief supporting character. Um, Bring Up Baby, um, obviously, um, this is an, a fantastic screenplay. I think it is based on a short story. I think they didn't even have the, um, the, the, the what is it, a leopard? Um, yeah, is it a leopard? Oh, God, what? Yes, I think it is <laughs> um, in the original short stories. So um, they really did a lot to opening this up and create this um, iconic um, comedy. Holiday is just a wonderful movie. It is um, touching. It is very dimensional. It has does great work developing the different characters giving them all their own agenda, but never too obvious, allowing them to slowly change. So this is a wonderful um, screenplay, probably also based on a wonderful play. Um, and Pygmalion is obviously, um, yeah, it's, it's also again based 
on a wonderful play. I'm actually, it probably didn't change too much from the original source material since it is also, since my fair lady is also, um, has most of the same dialogue, but um, still you need to bring it to the screen and the movie did this very well, also with the help of the screenplay and not make it feel like just a film stage version. So those are my five nominees for adapted screenplay. Yeah, that's a solid list. So my nominees are The Citadel, Holiday, Jezebel, Pygmalion, and You Can't Take It With You. You Can't Take It With You is just pure Robert Riskin gold. The dialogue sparkles and all the family member interactions feel human, but at the same time heightened for comedic effect and just pure entertainment value. Pygmalion, it is a faithful adaptation that cap captures and maintains the essence of the play. And then Jezebel, this was an early script by John Huston. And again, I think it's another really good play adaptation that opens up the roots of this um of the material to the film medium to make it feel more scopic and suitably it's drenched in all this simmering melodrama and histrionics and yeah it's just incredibly engaging and then there's holiday which is just a great Philip Berry adaptation and the dialogue by Donald Ogden Stewart and Sidney Buckman again it's just fluffy sharp witty classy and delightful and then yeah. there's Citadel which is a really good character study and it doesn't feel like necessarily a shallow insight into some of the issues it brings up, which I appreciated. Yeah, I have to say, um, Jezebel and you can take it with you. They would have been my num basically my number six and seven and could just as, easily, just as easily have been nominated by me. I think in the end, I just decided to go for the scripts that make me laugh the most, and so they kicked them out, but they are just as equally deserving. That's understandable. So next is Best Original Screenplay. Yeah, Best Original Screenplay, this is really, I have to say, personally for me, it's really a wasteland this year. As I said, it feels like every movie was somehow adapted from some, something, so I really had trouble to come up with this category. Um, so my five nominees are, this, maybe it's a little bit more like a participation trophy, um, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Algier, The Cowboy and the Lady, The Mad Miss Menton, 
and Sweethearts. Um, so The Adventures of Robin Hood, um, I wasn't 100% sure if this is an original screenplay, but I think just because it is I think it's mostly based on legends and other stories, but I don't think it's um, based on anything specific. So I think it's probably an original screenplay. Um, Algier is an interesting story. Um, so that you have um, Charles Boyer's character, character um, torn between his different obligations, um, his love for Hedy Lamar's character and his desire to return to Paris. Um, the Cowboy and the Lady was actually a big surprise for me. I did not, I did not really expect a lot, but I really loved that movie in the end. Um, I think it's quite a, a funny, um, just like a Bluebird's Eighth Wife, um, another comedy with Gary Cooper, who I have to say is a really kind of an underrated comedic actor. I think he's mostly remembered today for his rather stoic, dramatic performances, but I really enjoy him in, in his comedic work. Um, the Mad Miss Menton is a Barbara Stenwick, Henry Fonda vehicle, I think, in the tradition of the Sin Man. Um, it's not, not too much to write home about, but it does have an engaging um, crime at, crime story at the end and I really enjoy all the scenes with Barbara Stanwyck and her her high society friends who are always running around and trying to solve this crime so this gives some opportunities for nice comedy and Sweetheart is a musical comedy picture um, where I thought that the story was actually more engaging than than expected. So you have the story about these two Broadway actors who are lured to Hollywood and by evil producers and then they split up. And I think there are quite some interesting and funny observations on the difference between working on Broadway and working in Hollywood and some snappy one-liners so that in the end I'm, I'm okay with the five nominees, but I don't think there was really I don't think I have any other alternatives here. So they were really the five I, I, I was able to find. Ah, yes. Um, sometimes in the 19, like in the very early stages, it can be hard to find worthy contenders. Like the 1940s were infamously a wasteland for the original screenplay category because for some reason there was an original story category. And there's, uh, it's always confusing, like, what are these stories, like, originally short stories published in some other medium, or are they, like, short stories written for film? Like, it can be hard to understand, like, the rules for that. Like, the best example of just how stupid the motion picture story category is, uh, in my opinion, is Here Comes Mr. Jordan winning the best motion picture story category. Even though it's based on a previously published play, the playwright who wrote that play, Heaven Can Wait, Harry Seagal, won the Best Motion Picture Story category. And it's like, like, are you even trying with this category? But, anyways, my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, Angels with Dirty Faces, Bringing Up Baby, Grand Delusion, 
and vivacious lady. I think the adventures of Robin Hood really builds upon the Robin Hood folklore tale in an effective way. And even though it may not be one of the most recognizable aspects of the film, it's still, every film needs like a foundation that is the script and The Adventures of Robin Hood, its screenplay does just that perfectly well. And then Angels with Dirty Faces, I really like the relationship and the friendship between um, Rocky Sullivan and Father Connolly. And it is just a riveting crime story that takes a lot of clever turns, even if it's building itself upon a very familiar basis. And then Ring of Baby is just one of those classic screwball comedies in which the dialogue is just pops. Like, all the dialogue is so performative yet so perfect. Like, Thog just has this great readability. Like, reading these lines just feels right. And then there's Grand Illusion which is a perfect encapsulation of the immorality of war. And what I really like is how It meditates on the collapse of the old order of European civilization and all their sentimental upper-class delusions. The dialogue also works on that front. And then there's Vivacious Lady, which is such a lovely romantic comedy where Ginger Rogers and James Stewart are just adorable together. This group just plays to their natural charisma and they have wonderful chemistry and yeah it's just a lovely bubbly movie that it's such a good time yeah that's a, that's a elected one I, I have to say that the scene um, with uh, Ginger Rogers and uh, the other woman in James Stewart's life uh, where they constantly uh, hit the yeah, yeah, and where they constantly uh, slap each other, and then Ginger Rogers always slaps her, and then always says, psh, psh, slaps her again. Oh, that was yeah, I think I just best remember the scene when they're in the car, either that or the scene where they're eating corn on the cob. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice movie. Yeah. I have to say what I what I always find so interesting when, when watching these movies. So I never really watched movies for a specific year before. And you always know how in the earlier days the act how busy the actors were and how many movies they had to do what a year per year. But now you really get a feeling for that. I mean there are so many actors that you see in so many different movies. Um 
you have James Stewart in three movies. You have Walter, obviously Walter Brennan popping up so often, but also people like Mae Robson, David Niven, Basil Rathbone, or, or seeing Rosalind Russell as a supporting actress in so many different movies. It's really kind of you basically you watch a movie and think, oh, I saw this. Oh, okay. So many of them are doing so many different movies. It's really amazing. Probably exhausting for them. Yeah. I was like, one of those things where if you think more about it, you wonder how they did so many movies. Yeah. Besides the obvious studio contracting and mandating. Yeah. <laughs> Not a really quite next... and also so many so many small character act actors so wait where I have to say I don't even know the name of the actors but some but you somehow get a feeling for so many faces so there was this this one actor with a very thick German accent and I also I remember I also saw him in the great Ziegfeld in a very small part and he was also in this this year he was in so many different movies again also it's just very small parts maybe a couple of minutes but somehow he popped up again and again Maybe you're talking about Felix Bressart? Wasn't he in the... Oh, wait. You're talking about the Great Ziegfeld. Yeah, he really just had a small role in the Great Ziegfeld. I think he was a tailor or something like this, and they, he just had an argument with Ziegfeld about that he, he wants his money or something like this, but he popped up in a lot of different movies also that year, and I then I looked up his name on Wikipedia because uh, apparently he killed himself after World War II because he didn't get any offers anymore. So it was actually quite a tragic story, but I, I looked up his name because he, but I don't remember it now at the moment, to be honest. But um, yeah, I just just noticed how many different act actors and faces pop up in these movies again and again, how busy they were in those days, or how, or not, maybe not how busy, just how, probably how strict the studio rule was and just told them, okay, next, 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 next. Yeah. So next is Best Supporting Actress. Supporting Actress. So um, Supporting Actress was a little bit wastelandish for me. So I had two nominees that were pretty much set in stone, two maybe that's a um, little bit interchangeable and then number five where I had just different contenders and at the end just decided on one. So my nominees are Faye Bainter and Jezebel. Um, okay before I say the ne next nominee I also have to say I take a small detour from the official Oscar rules and I nominate some actors for more than one performance. Um, but uh, but I only do it when I feel that one of the performances is already nomination worthy. So it's not like I think, okay, he was in so many movies, so I give him a nomination. It's only when they deserve it in both cases. So as I said, Faye Bainter and Jezebel, then Billy Burke for Everybody Sing and Marilee Willif, Louise Reiner for The Great Waltz, Mae Robson for Bringing Up Baby and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and Gail Sondergaard for Dramatic School. Um, so Faye Bainter is probably the, mo the most obvious nominee. I don't think I ever heard anybody say anything bad about her. She is um, the quintessential supporting actress. Um, 
that year with that performance. I don't think the Jezebel, I think the Jezebel is very much presented as a one woman show um, for its central character and Betty Davis performance, but Faye Bainter really takes this part and she does so much in the background, just um, her facial expressions from worrying to trying to restrain her feelings, um, welcoming press and his new wife. There's so much going on in, in her performance that is happening from either the background or from the side of the frame. And she never lets Betty Davis overshadow her and offers splendid support, which is what this category is about. Um, Billy Burke in, so I nominated her for Everybody Sing and for Merrily We Live, which is essentially the same performance. So in both, both movies um, center on a kind of wacky family. And in both cases, she is the wacky mother who doesn't really, doesn't really seem to know what's going on. She lives in her own world, has constantly changes her mind, changes the topic, um, very confused. Um, I would say it's just her style, but it works well in these two movies. And I think um, it's the kind of, she's the kind of performer you can give a nomination for, for perfecting her own style so much. Um, yeah, Louise Reiner and the Great Walls. I think this is probably a typical me that I give her a nomination for this. Um, I know she was first built for the Great Walls, but I think this is definitely a supporting role. Um, she is very much absent for most of the movie until she has her big dramatic scenes near the end. Um, she plays um, the suffering wife, um, but again, this is a role that is totally tailored to her talents and what she can do on the screen. So she has this um, pretending to be happy while dying inside due to her heartbreak moments. And there are few who just does it so well as she does. Um, May Robson for Bring a Baby and the Adventures of Tom Sawyer. These are actually two diff different styles of performances. So in Bring a Baby, she totally injects herself into the crazy surroundings, works very well with uh, Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. Um, is a little bit the straight character, but also with her own craziness so that she perfectly fits into the, the whole style. And in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, she plays um, Tom Sawyer's aunt, who is both exhausted by him, but also clearly loves him. And she does a very nice job of balancing these two aspects. And Gail Sondergaard in Dramatic, Dramatic School is a little bit my fun nominee, so don't want to give away already um, too much, but um, she is the one that was most on the, on the edge if she would get the nomination. Um, in the end, I decided to give it to her because it's the she's, she creates the kind of character I would like to know more about, and I wouldn't mind seeing a whole movie about, which I think is also a great job for a supporting player. Um, you just totally believe that she is this great diva of the stage, and that she has really no interest in teaching all these young girls um, and how teaching her them how to act when she probably feels that she should be doing all these roles. Um, has nice chemistry with Louis Reiner. Um, it's not a big role, but she does her turn from being this bitchy teacher to becoming sort of a mentor very well. And I decided to just give her a nod for this. Yeah, that's a, 
um, I haven't seen Dramatics before, but I'd argue that um, this is a solid list of nominees. So my nominees are Rosalind Russell for The Citadel, Faye Bainter for Jezebel, Danielle Dario, I think that's how you spell it, for, I'm not, how do you pronounce it, for Mayerling, Billy Burke for Merrily We Live, and Spring Byington for You Can't Take It With You. I think that um, Byington is just delightful, just being one of the members in this family. And even if she doesn't stand out the most, she's just such a good ensemble player who adds flavor to the proceedings. And I just like what she adds to the movie. And then there's Billy Burke and Merle We Live, who does the typical uh, Billy Burke performance. Or she's just so lovable. It's these sorts of ditzy, high society dames, and she steals everything she's in. And Daniel Dario is just so glamorous in Mayerling, and she makes Murray Vetsera more than just a romantic interest in Charles Boyer's character. Like her character is interesting in and of itself, almost probing his mind. And then there's Faye Bainter for Jezebel. who's so wonderful at supporting Davis and working around her and just, it almost feels like she's sternly reprimanding her in so many scenes in a quiet manner. Her presence just feels like that of a teacher or a strict adult. And she was just one of the greatest character actresses of her generation, and she's also excellent in White Banners. Yeah, totally agree. She really had a great year with um, Jezebel and White Banners. With Billy Burke, I really wonder, I mean, I, I, I know that she was in The Wizard of Oz, but I have to say I, I'm not too familiar with her. I, would, I really would like to see a little bit more of her because I wonder if um, it's just a coincidence that her two roles that year were so similar. Uh, is similar to two that I saw if this was really just her style that she did in everything. So I have to say I have, don't have the answer to that at the moment. I would need to dig deeper into her filmography for that. She is good in films like uh, Bill of Divorcement and Dinner at Eight. If you haven't right, seen those, she was I was... Of, right, she was in Bill of Divorcement, now that you say it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I so no. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? No, I, I just thought it was, I mean, the two roles that, that I nominated her for that really basically the same, this, it was the same part in the same performance, so it just felt easy to nominate her for both. It was just so uh, yeah. obvious. <laughs> yeah. I think the divorcement is most notable for being Catherine Hepburn's yeah. like, debut, <laughs> or debut or breakout role. But yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while since I saw since I saw that. I remember Catherine Hepburn. I don't remember Billy Burke. To be, I, I remember that she had a mother. I think she was probably her mother. 
but I don't remember really anything about the performance. Mm. So next is Best Supporting Actor. My nominees for Best Supporting Actor. Edward Arnold in You Can't Take It With You, Lou Ayres in Holiday, Walter Houston in Of Human Hearts, Robert Morley in Marie Antoinette, and Alan Mowbray in Merrily We Live. Um, so Edward Arnold, um, You Can't Take It With You is a big ensemble and I sometimes have trouble remembering the specific performances. For example, I know that every time I watch it, I like Spring um, Binden, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but I have a lot of trouble then to remember her performance when I'm done watching the movie. And Edward Arnold is the one character that somehow always stays with me. So he plays uh, James Stewart's father, the, the initially rich, um, quote, evil guy who at the end, um, becomes um, Frank Capra-sized and becomes good and sees everything that really values in life. And I think he does a great job of doing this transformation of making his characters three-dimensional and not stereotypical evil or suddenly changed, but he makes this a slow process and it's wonderful to watch. Um, Lou Ayres is, uh, for me, a perfect supporting player in Holiday. Um, he plays Catherine Hepburn's drunk brother, who has sort of given up on himself and accepted that all he can do in life is whatever his father wants, even if this is not what he wants himself. And alcohol is all that he has to deal with it. It's um, it's a performance that wonderfully and brilliantly balances comedy and um, pathos. And, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Pathos? Pathos? Um, um, there's just, um, <laughs> um, it's just beautiful to watch. Um, you really want him to go with Catherine Hepburn's character at the end to leave the house and start his own life. Um, you really hope that she comes back for him. Um, he does wonderful comedic bits while, and is again like um, a little bit like um, Gail Sondergaard in erratic school, um, creates a supporting character with a little screen time that you, that you really want to know more about. Um, Walter Houston of Human Hearts. Um, of Human Hearts is of course the movie that got a supporting actress nomination for Eula Bondi and I have no problem with her performance. He just uh, didn't make my shortlist and I instead went with Walter Houston. Um, I was very surprised by his performance because he plays this kind of strict um, preacher father uh, in somewhere in America, probably somewhere in the wild, I don't know where exactly, but um, in this kind of area where everybody's very religious and he is um, the, the strict preacher and you would expect a very two-dimensional, humorless, strict characterization, but Walter Houston does add a lot of uh, three dimension to the character. So he's not completely strict. He get the feeling that he loves his son and that he loves his wife and that he is not totally out of touch with a normal life, but still very focused on his own beliefs and what he thinks is right and is wrong. 
um, I think a great job of balancing this and making this character much more than you might have expected. Um, Robert Morley is the egg-shaped kind of clumsy king of France. Um, of course, Marie Antoinette is not a very complex picture. You have um, somehow the noble royals on one side and the evil peasants on the other side. And Robert Morley is a little bit like this guy who doesn't want to be king and is not really clever enough to and not commanding enough to, but he has to be. And uh, Robert Morley beautifully handles these contradictions and makes he has nice relationship with Norma Shearer and really feel for him at the end and you really also sense that there's a certain growth in his character from the first scene where he doesn't want to have anything to do with her to saying goodbye to her at the end and yeah again also brings much more to the character than expected and Ellen Mowbray in Merrily We Live is probably again my off the wall nominee um, he plays uh, the butler in the real butler. And I have to say, he made me laugh out so many times. He has does some really funny facial expressions. He has to balance this task of being kind of a wacky character, like the family he, that he works for, but also trying to bring a certain dignity to his position, to his profession of, of a butler. And yeah, I think this is just uh, just really just my my nomination for a really well made comedic performance. So those are my five nominees. Those are inspired choices. So um, my nominees for best supporting actor are Basil Rathbone for The Adventures of Robin Hood, Pat O'Brien for Angels with Dirty Faces. Eric von Stroheim for Grand Illusion. Robert Morley for Marie Antoinette. And Edward Arnold for You Can't Take It With You. So with Basil Rathbone, I think he... He's just a delight as the villainous guy of Gisborne. He's... A great villain, and I love when he squares off with Robin Hood. Pat O'Brien, I think, is effective at playing his character because his priest actually has some complexity. He and Rocky were friends who started out as juvenile delinquents, and it might be a somewhat cliched story of good apple versus bad apple. One taking the good path and the other taking the bad one, but it still works because O'Brien and Cagney have terrific chemistry. He's believably passionate about what he does in the scenes with the dead and kids trying to stop them from going the path of Rocky. It is just riveting. And then with Eric von Stroheim, it's one of those iconic performances where even if you haven't seen the movie, you just know what it is. You can instantly identify stills of his wounded ace pilot, Von Rothenstein, in his neck and back brace, and that monocle. And then there's Robert Morley, who I think there's something sweet yet tragic about Robert Morley's performance as the King of France. And then Edward Arnold, 
plays the sort of big, bad, um, stuffy businessman that he was always so good at playing. He plays the head of a rich family who's on the verge of taking over, and he's incredibly funny as this rich Scrooge type with a strong, forceful personality. But he adds a bit more nuance than just that. There is humanity to his ruthless businessman, or at least there's more layers behind it. So yeah, those are fun. Those are my five nominees. Yeah, also, also great. I think "Sweet but Tragic" is uh, is perfect for for a perfect description for Robert uh, Morley. And I was always kind of surprised that you can take it with you. That the Academy loved it so much that they gave it uh, Best Picture, but that they only gave it one acting nomination. You would think, but with this big ensemble, they would have maybe nominated someone else. And yeah, and for for the Adventures of Robin Hood, I also like your your Basil Rathbone nomination. I actually have, um, if I would have nominated someone from that movie for supporting actor, it would have been Claude Rains, who I liked very much um, as as the evil king. But yeah, I think um, they are both pretty great. Did you see Four Daughters? Um, have I seen Four Daughters? Yeah. Um, I have. It's it's all right. It's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I also didn't didn't think too much of it, and I, I saw it because of John Garfield's nomination. I have to say, I actually preferred um, Jeffrey Lynn in the same movie, who played uh, Felix. So the character that um, one of the daughters was originally supposed to marry, but then she runs off with John Garfield. And so, if I would have given somebody a nomination from the movie, it would have been him instead of Garfield. And I have to say, Walter Brennan's, I think we, neither of us nominates uh, the winner that year, Walter Brennan. And I have to say, yeah. watching Kentucky, I have to say, this is probably one of my least favorite acting wins, to be honest. I, he's I, certainly, I, sorry, he's certainly down there for me. Like, I haven't seen that many sporting actor wins, but this one is just. This was clearly like a case of like the early voting, where the yeah. uh, extras had a say in who got nominated and such, and they just gave them three Oscars, and people barely remember them nowadays. Yeah, and I mean, even I mean, he he did so many other stuff that year. They could have, if they wanted to give it to him so much, they could have given it. He was also in the Adventures of Tom Sawyer, for example. I, I mean, I wouldn't given him have given him an Oscar for that one either, but. Not in Kentucky. I mean, I understand maybe that I think he wasn't very old actually when he did that movie, and he he comes across as this old guy. So I give him that, but I don't really don't think that there's anything to that performance worth uh, noteworthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a great one. So next is best actress. Oh, it's, it's always the most important category. Yes. So, um, for Best Actress, I have um, Betty Davis in Jezebel, Catherine Hepburn for Bring Up Baby and Holiday, Wendy Hiller for Pygmalion, Norma Shearer for Marie Antoinette, 
and Margaret Sullivan for Three Comrades. So I'm actually sticking close to the Academy's five nominees. I only switched Faye Bainter with Catherine Hepburn and notice to, um, to Faye Bainter who was uh, very touching and um, did a beautiful job in, in White Banners. So um, yeah, Betty Davis is probably a pretty obvious nominee that year. Um, she is now Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind, but she has her own spin on the Southern Belle character. She brings her usual fire and energy to the part, um, this rebellious attitude. She is both repelling and fascinating, which I think the character asks for. And some, it's even if as the viewer, we are on her side naturally, it's still easy to understand why other characters would not like her. So she makes it easy to both be fascinated by her, but also um, resent her. Um, Catherine Hepburn had an amazing year with Bring Up Baby and Holiday. And obviously in real life, this was her box office poison period. So not a, at the time, not a good face for her, but looking back, um, this is really one of the best years of her career. Um, she is absolutely perfect in Bring Up Baby. Um, I read that she initially did not really know how to play this character, that she played up the comedy too strongly until um, another, um, somebody on the set who I think then play, also played a part in the movie showed her how to do it so that she would do the comedy without making it obvious to the viewer that she is funny so that just um, play it straight, but still be totally crazy. And she nails this from start to finish from her scenes at the golf course and constantly chasing Cary Grant's character to the scene in the prison. She is just a delight from start to finish. And this is probably the perfect screwball comedy performance. And in Holiday, she is wonderfully human and touching. Um, she perfectly plays opposite um, everyone else in the cast. You never have the feeling that she wants to get Cary Grant's um, character for herself. She always, she's always supportive of her sister and doesn't really want to fall in love with him. It's just something that happens until she also realizes that her sister is not the kind of person she always thought that she was. So there's a lot going on with her and um, it's just beautiful to watch, and she's really perfect in both of these movies. Um, Wendy Hiller in Pygmalion. Um, she is a little bit my default nominee. Um, I know a lot of people love her. Um, I'm not so crazy about her. I, I, I get that she did the role very well and that she suited it also very well. She's not too memorable for me. I have to say, even though it is a big part and she's, she obviously is the movie, I sometimes when it's over, I have trouble remembering specifically what she does. But whenever I rewatch it, I'm like, oh yeah, no, she's, she's actually quite good. So um, she got a place here for my nominees. Um, I think Norma Shearer is perfection in Marie Antoinette. This is for me, one of the great dramatic performances from that era. Um, she is obviously a kind of artificial actress sometimes with this very distinct old fashioned acting style, but it suits perfectly to this movie. Um, she carries it from start to finish, um, balances the task of having a 
believable relationships with both Tyron Power and um, Robert Molly. Um, she does great A work at the end, um, her dramatic scenes, um, saying, having to say goodbye to her children, having to say goodbye to her husband, having to say goodbye to her lover. These are all absolutely first class. And this is really one of the great performances from that era. And Margaret Sullivan is another actress who I saw in more movies than I expected that year. But uh, for me, her work in Three Comrades um, is the best what she does that year. Um, she is, is a touching melancholy to her work, um, a constant sadness, but never exaggerated. Um, she enjoys the company of all the characters around her. She is never a love interest, but always be more becomes like one of the guys and beautifully fits into this group and has um, very touching dramatic scenes and there's really some, some very lovely work here. Definitely with all those nominees. This is just a really great year for actresses in film. Like, this field is so strong. Like, I did consider Faye Banter and White Banners and Gene Arthur and You Can't Take It With You. But at the end of the day, my nominees were Catherine Hepburn for Bringing Up Baby, Betty Davis for Jezebel, Norma Shearer for Marie Antoinette, Wendy Hiller and Pygmalion, and Margaret Sullivan in The Shining Hour. So, Margaret so Sullivan was nominated for Three Comrades, to, and you nominated, for, nominated her for Three Comrades, but I actually preferred her in this movie. I think she has just great chemistry with Joan Crawford and her other co-stars, and she was just this great underrated star with pensive eyes and smoky voice, and she is just a such a sweet presence while still maintaining a level of control on your attention. And there's Wendy Healer who's just perfectly cast as Eliza Doolittle. Like she is just believable from start to finish. She has such a vivacious, convicted spirit. She's feisty, assertive, yet vulnerable enough, and her Cinderella-like transformation is believable. She's convincing as both the flower girl and the upper-class lady, and her chemistry with Leslie Howard is just perfect. And then there's Norma Shearer for Marie Antoinette, or she leads into the artificiality that it that is in it through this epic. She is breathtaking as usual, and she leverages her unique presence to make Marie just feel believable yet otherworldly at the same time. And then there's Betty Davis and Jezebel who makes Julie Marsden just such a divine bitch. And she does so much with just her eyes. And she, even though she does a lot of terrible things, she's 
so compelling when she does it. You're just so fascinated by her. And then there's Catherine Hepburn for bringing up Baby, which is one of the those, again, an iconic screwball comedy heroine. It's just one of those defining dizzy dames. And yeah, Susan Vance is just adorable as Hepburn plays her. And I love how she just gets up from any out any sort of dangerous situation, which really ups the comedy and the hilarity. And she has amazing chemistry with Cary Grant. Yeah, I, I, I like that we have the, the, the five same nominees, only one different movie. Um, I also like Margaret. I also like Margaret Sullivan in The Shining Hour, and it's a. I, th I don't think the movie is too long, and it's a. It's a movie where Faye Bainter gets drunk and burns down a house, and oh, John yes. Craw and John Crawford carries Margaret Sullivan um, around. So it's definitely, if you're an actress lover, it's definitely worth watching. <laughs> I also yeah. had. Um, probably have to say this, I also had on my, my long list, um, Melissa Crothers for The Great Walls. I know that she was nominated as supporting. I personally consider her leading. I think she has a very large role. And I just say that because probably like a confession, because I know that her performance is not very popular. And I do agree that it's, it's not a perfect performance from my acting point of view. But I somehow compare her a little bit to Jennifer Hudson in Dreamgirls, where you are aware that the acting is not necessarily great, but there is a certain presence that somehow makes you forget this. And I actually was a little bit on the fence between her and Wendy Hiller, which probably will, um, some people will probably want to kill me for this. Um, but yeah, just wanted to throw that out. <laughs> Yes, we'll have to see how film Twitter reacts. Yeah. Just what you have to say. Yeah, I, know, yeah. I know it's not a very popular performance, but I, I, for some reason, I find her quite fascinating. Yeah. So next is best actor. So for best actor, I have James Cagney for Angels with Dirty Faces, Errol Flynn for The Adventures of Robin Hood. Cary Grant for Bring Up Baby and Holiday, Leslie Howard for Pygmalion, and my Off the Wall nominee, Basil Rathbone for If I Were King. Um, I start with Rathbone. Um, he was nominated as supporting um, watching If I Were King. I personally had the feeling that he is a secondary co-lead to um, Ronald Coleman. I thought he, I thought the relationship between them uh, was the main aspect of the movie. And it felt, for me, it felt that he was a big enough presence to put him in the lead category. And I was a little bit on the fence about uh, the spot for him. So I decided to, to give this to him. Um, as I mentioned already, I felt he was completely unrecognizable in this role. Um, it was a true transformation, but not just for showy effect. I think he really created a, a very unique character there. Um, strangely engaging, but with a certain danger around him. So still, even if he comes across as a little bit di maybe dizzy and um, slightly lovable, you still wouldn't want to cross him and are always a little bit aware of that he 
could just um, stab you in the back in the next moment. Um, James Cagney in Angel with, Angels with uh, Dirty Faces is, um, yeah, that's the, the, the standard um, tough guy gangster performance, which he does so well and does very well here. Um, he has great chemistry with all the kids. Um, he is very straightforward in the movie, so you never have the feeling that he really does a lot of great act acting, but just he so completely inhabits this role and everything he does feels very natural and this just fits him like a glove. Um, Errol Flynn in The Adventures of Robin Hood is maybe also not really great acting, but it's just um, the kind of performance where you need a ton of movie star charisma to, to make it work and make it seem so effortless. And I think he, he does have that and does um, offer this splendidly in this movie. Um, Cary Grant is basically the same, as I said, for, for Catherine Hepburn. He is, on the one hand, he is completely crazy and out of his mind in bringing a baby, um, exhausted by all of Catherine Hepburn's antics, but um, there's a very peculiar characterizations of his own, so perfect fit for her and for this very unique word that is created in this movie and on the one hand on the other on the other hand again very touching and earnest in holiday um again wonderful chemistry with Catherine Hepburn but in a completely different way also again very believable that he at first loves uh, Catherine Hepburn's sister that he has his own ideas for his future and is willing to change that for her but comes to a breaking point and that's this whole transformation very believable and again perfect in both of these movies and Leslie Howard for me the, the star of Pygmalion um, somehow there's a, I, um, I watched um, I have seen My Fair Lady so many times so um, for me Rex Harrison is kind of the character I always associate with Professor Higgins but Leslie Howard has this very own and unique spin on this role. And he is obviously younger and brings a different dynamic and a different uh, aspect to his relationship with uh, Wendy Hiller. But he is truly marvelous in this part. And just like James Cagney, it fits him like a glove and he comes across as so natural in delivering all these lines and being this, this bitchy professor and talking down to her and slowly um, realizing how much she really means to him. So yeah, these are my five nominees. Absolutely, those are all great nominees. So uh, my list of nominees are James Cagney for Angels with Dirty Faces, Cary Grant for Bringing Up Baby, Robert Donat for The Citadel, John Gavin for Grand Illusion, and Leslie Howard for Pygmalion. So with James Cagney and Angels with Dirty Faces, it, it's one of those tough guy gangster roles that he just perfects to a T. Like, he's amazing playing up the emotionally manipulative part of Rocky Sullivan. Like, He's so intense and manic as the menacing gangster and also sad and pathetic when he's about to be executed. And 
His friendship with Father Connolly provides heart that fits with the character and adds depth, and Cagney is credible in selling that. And then there's Cary Grant and bringing up Baby, who's just bumbling and nervous, and his reactions are just always hilarious, especially when Susan Vance is driving um, just insane, and he has great chemistry with Hepburn, and they craft all together. And he's just a perfect straight man to Hepburn. And then there is Robert Donat in the Citadel, where I think that he's great at being the golden boy with an earnest idealism, but also being multifaceted and showing a crisis midway throughout the film. And then there's John Gavin in Grand Illusion, where he's the modest yet determined Lieutenant Nori Chow, and he's basically your everyman inserts and goes through every grueling thing as a war prisoner. And it's just a great performance. And then Leslie Howard is uh, Henry Higgins. He's cutting yet oddly charming. He starts out as a pig yet gradually softens and becomes less prejudiced. So those are my five nominees. And again, both of us um, dropped uh, the male acting winner. Yes, we'll get to that. So next is Best Director. For Director, I have um, Frank Borzaghi for Three Comrades, George Cukor for Holiday, Michael Curtis for The Adventures of Robin Hood, Howard Hawks for Bringing Up Baby, and Norman Tarok for The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Um, yeah, Three Comrades is not a movie I nominate in a lot of categories, but uh, I think that the direction and the acting is the big plus that, that it has. And this very melancholic and kind of slightly dangerous atmosphere that constantly lingers above the plot is in my opinion, in very part influenced by the direction of Frank Bozeghi, who does create some beautiful shots, who allows his actors to, gives them time to breathe and never feels rushed. Um, there are many moments that are very slow, but important for the development of the, of the different characters and the story, and feels very much like a, direct, like a director's achievement. Um, George Cuker brings a lot of his usual quality to Holiday, um, makes this um, movie version of a play without making it feel like a, uh, a film play, nor does it feel like a ripoff of the original that was made a couple of years earlier. Um, the movie has its own distinct feeling. Cuker knows how to use his actors um, to, bring, to bring the story to life and does a great job of um, balancing all these different kind of personalities in the story. Um, Michael Curtis, um, The Adventures of Robin Hood, um, obviously does a great job of creating this very distinct, distinct world, um, balancing the, the, the more romantic scenes with all the fight and 
fighting scenes. Um, you have the, the duel with the, with the crossbows. So there's just a lot going on. And, and I think Michael Curtiz is very much to credit for making this movie as so iconic. Um, Howard Hawks brings the crazy, unique world of bringing a baby um, to the screen and that does an amazing job of keeping every keep every keeping everything going, never making it too much. Um, there's always, a, I think, especially at the beginning, there's always the danger of it becoming a little bit too crazy. But yeah, he constantly keeps the story going and brings in new aspects and dimensions, and or brings in new um, or, yeah, has seen new characters. And he, as a director, does a really fantastic um, job of, of um, bringing all this to life. And Norman Turk for The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Again, um, it's a movie I like much more than I thought. And directing children is probably always a little bit difficult, um, but he gets great performances out of them, not only from the main character, but also from the uh, supporting cast, um, the children. Um, there is a shift in tone from it being more like a children's movie to becoming kind of creepy at the end and with all the scenes in the cave and but it still feels like one movie and I credit him um, for this strongly so those those are my five nominees for director that's a solid list so my nominees are Michael Curtiz and William Kiley for The Adventures of Robin Hood, Michael Curtiz for Angels with Dirty Faces, Howard Hawks for Bringing Up Baby, Jean Renoir for Grand Illusion, and Anthony Asquith and Leslie Howard for Pygmalion. With Pygmalion, the direction ensures that this movie never feels like a film play. There are so many clever, inspired, directorial choices, like the blocking during the scenes uh, Henry and Eliza's lessons, and this definitely feels like a dual vision between Anthony Asquith, who was certainly a notable director in his own right, and Leslie Howard, who would direct a few films um, before he died very too soon. And then there's John Renoir, who's just such a master at his craft. And the message he delivers doesn't feel preachy, but rather pointed and darkly humorous and tragic. And then there's um, Howard Hawks, and he, he just makes the movie thrilling, and all the comedy bits, and it's just so cleverly staged. And it's frantic, and there's the rapid-fire overlapping dialogue. And a highlight of a scene is where they have to escape the dance due to Susan's ripped dress. That's a laugh riot. Uh, that's a laugh riot. That is a laugh riot in and of itself. Sorry, I'm pronouncing it correctly. And then there's Michael Curtiz for Angels with Dirty Faces. And... It is just an effective portrait of a gangster and his friendship. Not only does Curtis chronicle that story very well, but also 
showing how other people are affected by Rocky's decisions and his behavior. And then there's The Adventures of Robin Hood, which uh, again has two directors, just like Big Million. And this feels like a vision that works perfectly within the studio system and Warner Bros. But it is so well crafted and I don't know if Cortese and Kylie directed separate segments of a film or they work together, but this just feels perfect. Making great use of Technicolor and the great settings and showing the action at the greatest scope possible. Um, great nominees and, and thank you for, for, for reminding me that I completely forgot um, uh, the co-nominee for, for The Adventures of Robin Hood, um, William Kiley. So of course, then he is also my nominee as well. So Curtis and Kylie. <laughs> yeah. I also got to see another one of his films later on, The Man Who Came to Dinner, which was also a fun time and perhaps most notable for being Monty Wally's signature role. Mm -hmm. So next is Best Picture, or as they call it back then, Outstanding Production. Outstanding Production. So my nominees for Outstanding Production are The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Algier, Bringing Up Baby, The Cowboy and the Lady, Jezebel, Holiday, Merrily We Live, Pygmalion, and You Can Take It With You. So those are my 10 nominees. Um, I think I talked about most of them already. I think The Adventures of Robin Hood is, uh, again, pretty self-explanatory. Um, just, just a very iconic creation of um, a style that is known to this day. Um, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer was a very pleasant surprise um, as a movie that works both for children and for grown-ups and is very entertaining. Um, Algier is um, also a movie I like probably more for the sum of its parts than the parts itself. Um, Bring a Baby, um, again, also pretty self-explanatory. Um, classic schoolboy comedy can, cannot get any better than this. Um, the Cowboy and the Lady is maybe a little bit uh, like a surprise nominee here, but um, like Algier, it's a movie that maybe not noteworthy for specific aspects, even though I have um, some of the actors would be on my long list, but nobody would make um, an extra mm -hmm. nomination. But uh, I think the finished movie is uh, very entertaining and Sometimes when you watch a lot of these historic dramas, um, then just um, a very good comedy um, can make a difference. Um, Jezebel, wonderful picture and a great prequel to what we would get 
the year, the, uh, the next year. Holiday is uh, just a wonderful, touching movie that is probably not as well known as it should be. Uh, Merrily We Live is like The Cowboy and the Lady, uh, a very entertaining comedy that made me laugh a lot. So um, I decided to give it a spot here simply for being not being uh, some kind of stuffy musical drama. Um, Pygmalion is also a well-made uh, movie that benefits a lot from the clever story. And You Can't Take It With You is another one with a slightly wacky family, maybe not. The characters are maybe even more wacky than in the other comedies, but the tone is more serious thanks to Frank Capra's direction and the screenplay. And again, another movie that's maybe not the greatest best picture winner of all time, but certainly deserves to be on this list. Those are my 10. That is an interesting set of nominees. So my nominees are The Adventures of Robin Hood, Angels with Dirty Faces, Bringing Up Baby, The Citadel, Grand Illusion, Holiday, Jezebel, Marie Antoinette, Pygmalion, and You Can't Take It With You. So, for The Adventures of Robin Hood, it's inspired so many films in the swashbuckler and historical adventure genre. It's just so much glorious, melodramatic, almost cheesy fun with such a heightened sense of adventure. And I just love the feel of this movie. And then Angels with Dirty Faces. It's just a great gangster movie that uses the justification. Juxtaposition of Rocky Sullivan's evil and, Jer and Father Jerry Connolly's steadfast honesty throughout the years of their relationship. It almost plays like a tragedy. And then Bringing Up Baby. It's just one of the funniest movies ever made. I think it encapsulates all the elements that makes a classic screwball comedy. Uh, spirited, lovable characters, creative misadventures, witty dialogue, and clever jokes. And then there's The Citadel, which was a refreshing was a refreshingly intelligent look at corruption in the medical industry, and I like how unsentimental this movie is. And then there's Grand Illusion, which is one of the greatest movies of all time, and stands apart from the other war movies around this time by injecting a level of pathos and humor to the tragedy of how futile wars are. The choice to have a combined location for a good portion of this film is, um, also makes it strangely intimate. It's just a masterful uh, movie directed by a master of cinema. And it also influenced two famous later movie sequences, The Digging of the Escape Tunnel and The Great Escape and the singing of the Marseilles uh, to enrage the Germans in Casablanca. Like, even the details of the tunnel dig are the same, in that the prisoners hide the excavated dirt in their pants and shake it out on the parade ground during exercise. And then there's Holiday, which is another great Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant screwball comedy with more wacky hijinks and sharp dialogue and just a lot of sophistication and stylish direction from George Cukor. And then there's Jezebel, which is a great period melodrama and a great showcase for Betty Davis. And there's just so so much paranoia and death instruction from the Yellow Jacket epidemic. And you get a sense of almost everyone 
here is doomed on some level, and yet you're John the whole time. And then there's Marie Antoinette, which is a great epic chronicling the rise and fall of Marie Antoinette, and it doesn't just feel like some vapid vanity project, as someone might expect. It's just, it just works because it's so interested in Marie as a person. And then there's Pygmalion, which is witty and delightful and throws in some interesting psychological elements as well as as well as smoothing the roughness and some of the gender politics inherent in George Bernard Shaw's uh, source material. And then there's You Can't Take It With You, which... Hold on. Is a less well-remembered Frank Capra movie, but I still think it's an incredibly funny movie. James Stewart and Gene Arthur are electrifying, family interactions are zany and funny, and the story is just so sweet and charming that it's hard not to, it's hard to resist its charms. It's hard not to be won over. So yeah, those are my ten nominees. Uh, love your nominees. Also love the, 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 the not for Marie Antoinette. So yeah. uh, uh, quite quite interesting list. I just uh, just try to think on which movies we maybe disagree the most ever but what uh i think you give quite a few nods to the citadel i don't think i nominate that for anything i have quite a few nominations for the adventures of tom sawyer i don't think you nominated that for anything so i think these might be the movies we the ones yeah. you have uh, you, the ones we, for you where you have the most nominations and why we disagree the most <laughs> Yeah, definitely interesting. So, when we get back, we will announce our winners. After these messages, we'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. We'll be right back. Yeah. After these messages. We'll be right back. After these messages. We'll be right back. And we are back. So now it's time to announce our winners. And as always, the guest goes first. Um, so my winner for special effects is Suez. Um, uh, mainly the um, the big sandstorm at the end, with uh, Annabella being blown away, um, big flood coming in. So there's kind of stuff, uh, a lot of stuff happening that was was pushed it over the edge for me. Yeah, so my winner is Test Pilots. I think the big selling point is the aerial sequences. Though, if I watch Spawn of the North, that might be uh, in strong contention. I'll have to watch that movie. 
So next is film editing. Editing. Um, for editing, my winner is The Adventures of Robin Hood. For keeping the story flow very smooth, um, for all the, the fight scenes, um, keeping the action going between this and all the scenes with Errol Flynn and a little bit of I think it's just a very well edited movie. So my winner is Bringing Up Baby. I think the rapid fire cutting keeps the story engaging and consistently funny without feeling choppy or too fast. And it's just so tight as a movie. And I have to go with that. That's a very good winner. So next is best cinematography. Um, for cinematography, I agree with the Academy and give the win to the Great Walls for really letting the, the camera be caught up in all the, the, the music and dance numbers while also having very personal, personal close-ups, very interesting plays with shadow and light and making this, um, I think, much more than the usual standard uh, biopics and cinematography. So my winner is The Adventures of Robin Hood. I think it just looks the best of my five nominees and the Technicolor just holds up over 80 years later and I have to respect the hell out of that. So next is best of the rest. Um, what's next, sorry? Oh, sorry. Uh, next is Best Art Direction. Best Art Direction, yeah. I'm giving the win to Marie Antoinette. Um, just for the sheer grand spectacle of it all. So I don't think that when you go big, I don't think you can go any bigger. And without making it, and it never feels um, artificial or exaggerated, but always in sort of the, of the story. That is a good choice. So, my winner for Best Art Direction is The Adventures of Robin Hood. So I agreed with the Academy. And it just looks believable. Like, as you could get for like a big, budget, glossy, old Hollywood production from the 1930s in Technicolor. It just looks amazing. So next is Best Makeup. Um, for Best Makeup, I also go with Marie Antoinette. For, again, for the grand spectacle of it all, for making Norma Shearer really giving her the, all these different wigs and making her really uh, the, Queen of France that we always imagine Marie Antoinette would be without, again, without making it seem exaggerated or fake. And I also go with Marie Antoinette. Yay. Just for convincingly transforming Norma Shear into Marie Antoinette and really creating a fully realized character that she inhabits so well.
So next is best costume design. Um, best costume design. Okay, it's getting a little bit boring. I again go with Marie Antoinette. Um, again, just I think the spectacle of it all. I mean, it would be was very close with uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood, which is just so iconic. But I think the level of detail in the in Marie Antoinette, when you just read about how they went to Europe, how they recreated stuff from paintings and just the, the level of detail that and, and attention that they went into all the costumes for this movie is just overwhelming. And I have to respect that and give that a win. Yeah, definitely. So my winner is The Adventures of Robin Hood. Just all the iconic costumes that Earl Flynn and Olivia Havilland and Basil Rathbone and Claude Rains wear. I just respect all of it and not to go with it. So next is Best Sound Recording. Um, for Best Sound Recording, I go with You Can Take It With You. Um, simply for really using the sound in a way that's important to the story and making it a part of the story and engages the viewer in bringing them closer to the all these different characters in the movie. And I would agree. I also go with You Can't Take It With You. The sound plays a very important and interesting uh, part of the story. Or these conversations have to sound their best and everyone has to bounce off each other and I think it's effective in part because of the sound work. So next is best song. Um, so for best song I go with Cheapest Creepers from Going Places simply for being the most catchy and the one song that I think works also very well outside of, of a movie. I guess I also go with Cheapers Creepers from Going Places for the same reason. I think it's catchy and it's the most recognizable, I suppose. Next is Best Original Score. Um, for Best Original Score, I, yeah, there's only, I think there's only the choice of The Adventures of Robin Hood. And yeah, don't think any, any comment necessary. Um, yeah, same order here. Like, I don't think I need to elaborate too much. <laughs> so next is Best Foreign Film. Uh, best foreign film I give to The Human Beast from France um, for providing some of the most uh, unsettling uh, moments of the year. I go with Port of Shadows just for feeling like the most concise of my nominees. So next is best adapted screenplay. 
best adapted screenplay I give to Bring a Baby for being the basis for one of the most unique and original screwball comedies ever and for transforming a short story into this uh, big uh, world of its own. I go with Pygmalion, um, which is the Academy's choice, just because I think it is such a good source for witty dialogue and fascinating character dynamics, and it's just so readable, and Comparing this to the nineteen sixty four My Fair Lady, this does the story this version does the story so much better than My Fair Lady. If I want to go into my thoughts on it, I think it's um dull, overlong, and it looks cheap. And sorry, I like Audrey Hepburn, but I think she's terrible in the movie. And Rex Harrison is so unlikable. Uh, I and, know, I'm probably one of the I'm I don't I'm probably one of the few My Fair Lady fans on Twitter, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not one of them. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, next is Best Original Screenplay. Oh, yeah. Original Screenplay. Um, as I said, it's really not the most exciting category for me. And basically, the only win possible for me is the adventures of Robin Hood. Interesting. So my winner is Grand Illusion. And I think in my lineup, it does at least have one strong competition, a competitor in bringing up baby, but I had to go with Grand Illusion for having more ambition in terms of the stories trying to tell. Not that Bring a Baby isn't ambitious, but I feel like Grand Illusion covers so much more in terms of what it's saying. And yeah, it was just my favorite of my five nominees. So next is Supporting Actress. So for supporting actress, I was very close to giving a tie, but I always think a tie is, I'm always never happy about uh, 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 giving a tie. So I decided to have a winner and me being me, my winner is Louise Reiner in The Great Waltz for doing what she does so perfectly. And yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, I am glad about your uh, passion for Louise Reiner. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes it seem like I just give her the win because I like her, but I, I like her performance. So I wouldn't give it. I, I wouldn't give it to her if I didn't like her performance. I mean, I, the same year she was in the Toy Wife, for example, and I think she's pretty dreadful in that. Yeah, definitely. So, my winner is. Faye Bainter for Jezebel, which was the Academy's choice. Yeah, which so, is a perfect choice. Yeah. 
it's just one of those I think it's one of those performances that the supporting category was made for. Yeah, if I if she I is, had, if I had given a tie, it would have been between those two. Yeah, I just like all the looks, like all the somber, just pensive, thoughtful looks she gives to Betty Davis. So. Next is Best Supporting Actor. Um, so my Best Supporting Actor is Lou Ayres in a Holiday um, for being a perfect, um, for being the definition of a perfect supporting actor, creating um, a very memorable character um, of his own, um, never over trying to overshadow anyone or stealing any scenes, but flawlessly integrating him himself into into the story and becoming an integral part of it. That is a good choice. My choice is Eric von Stroheim for Grand Illusion. I feel he gives the most iconic of these performances. And he's just great. Yeah, definitely, definitely a great choice. And um, just as an FYI to all the listeners, so for my personal awards, I decided to just go with uh, English language movies. So if I ever expanded to um, non-English language movies, then of course this all might uh, change and probably Grand Illusion will then also play a bigger role. Mm. So next up is Best Actress. Um, so for Best Actress, um, again, was close between two contenders and I usually, out of the Academy's lineup, I always give the win to Norma Shearer. In my personal lineup, she is triumphed by Catherine Hepburn for her, for me, undeniable combo of Bring Up Baby and Holiday, which is pretty much unbeatable and probably every year this is Catherine Hepburn in her prime um, she does screwball comedy she does um, more quiet comedy as well as drama in holiday and has really two of the best parts of her career here definitely so my winner is Wendy Hill for Big Million I think this is just a perfect role for her at this stage in her career, and it's a perfect showcase for her. I like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> I say it very quiet. <laughs> and good for you. So. <laughs> So, next is Best Actor. Um, for Best Actor, it's the same as with Best Actress. I'm giving the win to Cary Grant for his combo of Bring Up Baby and Holiday. Um, like Catherine Hepburn, it's a perfect year for him. Um, he is an unbelievably skilled comedic actor. Um, he, like Catherine Hepburn, he can do this more crazy out of this world comedy, but in, in, in Holiday, a more quiet down, but also handles the drama very well, um, does the transformation of his character and 
again, just a combination of those performances. But even if I would nominate it, even if I would nominate him only for one of those performances, he would still be my winner. But um, both of them are just a clear winner. That is a good choice. So my winner is James Cagney for Angels with Dirty Faces. I feel like this sort of role was made for him and he was born to play these sorts of roles. He is a sort of rambunctious, devil-may-care charm that makes him so captivating as a gangster. And he should have won for this and not Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a while since I saw that one, but I thought I really liked him in that one. But uh, yeah. I, I thought he was but, annoying. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I, I actually don't know anymore about his. I remember what he used pretty well um, from that, but. I remember it. I was I was very impressed with his dancing. I didn't I didn't actually think that he was a dancer. Uh, but maybe I, I okay. Maybe I remember it wrong. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, you. I would say you should make your uh make your own opinion of the film. But personally speaking, I just thought the whole movie was annoying. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't I don't think I cared for the movie itself. Yeah, I didn't. It's just, yeah, uh, also typical. Rather propaganda movie, but yeah, I was, was yeah. Sometimes it gives actors good opportunities. So next is best director. Um, best director, I give to Howard Hawks for bringing a baby, um, for perfectly staging um, the comedy and keeping this very distinct style of um, always alive from start to finish but never going over the top and i think with such a topic and such quirky characters there's always the danger of it becoming too much but i think he really handled this pretty uh, very well that is a great choice my winner is Anthony Asquith and Leslie Howard for Pygmalion. I'll admit, I just wanted to give Leslie Howard an award since he not only starred but co-directed this movie, and there's also Anthony Asquith, who I feel was an interesting director who maybe should get talked about more. So I feel like this was a good opportunity to reward them both. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting winner, yeah. So now the big one, best picture. <laughs> so yeah, for best picture, I had for the longest time I had Holiday as my winner, um, and I think it's possible that it might be my winner again at some point. But at the moment, in rewatching all the movies, I decided for now I'm giving the win to Bring a Baby. Um, I think Holiday is the more human and touching story bring a baby is the more crazy quirky slapstick comedy but it just does it so well from start to finish that it 
for me it feels impossible to deny it at the moment but I, I might go back at some point to holiday but for now I'm sticking with bring a baby that is a great choice my winner is Pygmalion I just got the most out of this story from all these nominees and I just love the interplay between Leslie Howard and Wendy Hiller and how neatly it tells its story without making it feel too black and white. Yeah, so that's, a, that's a great one, yeah. So, now that we've announced our winners, do we want to talk a bit about the actual Best Picture winner? Um, yeah. I know we've already discussed it since we both nominated it and agree that it's a good movie, but maybe we could try and understand why it won in this year. I think it's always difficult with these early years when there were no real precursors and so little coverage on the, on the Oscar. So I think it's always difficult to to come up with a reason, I think Frank Capra was obviously at his prime with, with his third Best Director Oscar in like five years. And I suppose the movie got swept along, maybe the, the, the whole message of um, this um, joy alive for what it is, um, focus on what's really important, just resonated with audiences so close to, to the beginning of World War II. My, my reasoning for, for why it might have won it, and I suppose it was just a popular movie. Yeah, I would definitely agree with all those guesses, I guess. Like, it definitely feels like the sort of feel-good movie we, that uh, 1938 audiences would want in the midst of a war, and they just want to be entertained. Like, a common theme among these Depression-era movies is that, or just the sort of cultural attitude among movie lovers during the Depression is that they just wanted to be entertained. They want to escape from the depressing reality. And I think You Can't Take It With You uh, would have catered to that. I mean, the, the lineup that year, this is such an almost bizarre combination of slight comedy, war drama, real drama, musicals, even, yeah, just, even a movie like Test Pilot that when I that really doesn't scream best picture, at least in my opinion, but it feels like they really the three stars. Sorry? Uh, I was just going to say the star power of the three stars, three stars yeah. because it had Bomb, you know, yeah, definitely the star power, but I don't think there was really a lot of story actually there, but it seems like they really went into a lot of different directions that year for for their lineups. I mean, you can take it with you. It's obviously, the, the I mean, Pygmalion is a comedy. Uh, Four Daughters had some comedic aspects, but I would say you can take it with you is probably the most feel 
good comedy that's still not too that's still serious enough to be seen as best picture material so it's not like bringing a baby with, uh, which is just a com in quote just a comedy but you can take it with you as a comedy but it also has a message and maybe it just yeah. sticks out of, among this um, this very strange set of nominees yeah I think there could have also been they want to like make up for not giving them Best picture for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, since he won director for that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so, if if it hadn't been, you can take it with you. Probably would have been Boys Town, I would suppose, and. Or. That would have been yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not something we needed. No. I think yeah. I, I think neither of us is giving boys. I, I don't think neither of us is giving Boys Town any nomination, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's much. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's where we both disagree the most with the Academy. I mean, I, I mean, I can understand to some point why it was so popular. I mean, it, it was even the biggest. It was the biggest movie of the year. Which seems strange. I mean, I can understand. I mean, that some... like thirty-eight. I guess you have to like have to be take the mind, adopt the mindset of an average person in nineteen thirty-eight. And what are like the values of the, a nineteen thirty-eight audience? Maybe more conservative leaning, or. I don't know, this priest teaching these boys to be good and this, this feel-good yeah. ideology and all that. Yeah. And I mean, Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney were obviously big stars, but yeah. uh, also with Spencer Tracy's Best Actor win, this is a little bit like... Do Walter Sorry? Do we want to get into that? Like, try and parse uh, out why he won? Yeah, I think we definitely can go into that. I mean, I can understand why he won if it was such a big movie it is a kind of inspiring role um when you think of his co-nominees charles boyer and james cagney they played kind of shady characters uh donut and howard were both from england maybe there's some kind of bias against that even though of course donut won the next year but he had a much bigger part so and Tracy was obviously at his peak and had this big movie, but it's just, you know, it, it is a very straightforward performance. I don't think he's bad, but I think he, all the praise that he got in his early years for being such a natural actor, I think this is mostly because he is, for me, in his early years, he is rather very, a rather bland actor. And maybe because he didn't have any very obvious characterizations, maybe this was considered natural. But yeah. I, can, I, I like Tracy in his later work, um, but I, I have to say in the 30s, he doesn't really give me that much. And I'm a little bit perplexed that he was so highly praised there. And in Boys Town, it also feels like he's more, I mean, he, he is the lead character, there's no doubt about that, but the role is still very, all and limited. limited, especially compared to, to when, you, when you have Mickey Rooney constantly screwing up his face and making some kind of weird comedy and trying so obviously to steal the movie. 
Yeah, it, it feels a little bit perplexing that they gave it that they gave best actor to him. Yeah, it definitely doesn't hold up in modern context. Uh, Spencer Tracy just generally, I could give or take a lot of the time, but I do think he's really good in Fury and uh, the Seventh Cross, and I think he has good chemistry with uh, with. Irene Dunn and a guy named Joe. I guess I'm looking for more uh, movie roles and performances from him that really stand out to me and wow me. And yeah, this is definitely one of the more meh milk toast choices that the Academy has made. Yeah, it feels it feels like from the it probably makes sense as an academy choice. It's something that you would somehow expect from them. But yeah, definitely not the most exciting choice. So now let's get into questions from the audience. So we just got two. First one is from Zeta Shorts. Hi Zeta. How does Margaret Sullivan's death scene and three comrades compare to the other iconic female death scenes of the era? Greta Garbo and Camille, Betty Davis and Dark Victory, etc. It's difficult to say. Um, in a certain way, they all blend together in one big death scene, so you mostly have the you always have this this part where the woman is lying in a bed or something like this and says her last words. And I think in most cases, these actresses do them very well. So I I mean, Margaret Sullivan has the advantage that she has the scene at the end where she gets up and goes to the balcony. Um, Betty Davis, of course, has this whole, I mean, the last 15 minutes of the movie are basically one long death scene. Um, Louise Reiner, of course, I have to mention her, has also quite her share of death scenes. Um, they are also similar, similar shot. Um, I don't think you could really say how they compare. I think I think mostly can say that most actresses know if they are pro. And of course, Margaret Sullivan and Greta Garbo and Betty Davis, they are pros. If they are given materials like this, they know how to do it. Yeah. So I would say that it's a matter of how they are performed by each of these actors. Like with Betty Davis, she I'd say she plays it very intensely and with a stern sort of contemptuousness that only she could pull off. And then with Greta Gargo she is very somber and plays into a sense of melancholic tragedy. And then with Margaret Sullivan, she is capable of being very sweet without being too saccharine. And she's just innately likable and capable of making us sympathize for really any character she plays. So yeah, 
I think that's what it comes down to when it comes to sorry the scenes in every in each of these movies yeah this was very well put so yeah each of them brings a little bit of their own to it um yeah in the end the scenes are of course all a bit similar they all have these women dying but their death is not as important as somehow um, giving comfort to the men they love in their last minutes and and somehow um, giving them some kind of hope and spirit for the future. But as you said, they each bring their own unique style to it. Um, Even if the execution is sometimes resembles each other, but um, yeah, personally, if if a great actress gets a great death scene, then I'm all for it. If, if she knows how to how to play this and get everything out of it, then you usually get get a great moment. Definitely. So Owen Daly asked, "Does Faye Bainter, the first actor to get nominated in two acting categories in, in one year, have the best set of nominations?" Personally, I would say no. I think my favorite double nominees, just have to make sure that I remember all of them. I think my favorite would be Sigourney Weaver and Jessica Lange. I don't think I've seen many of them, but she certainly gives great performances in both White Banners and uh, Jezebel. So She is great, no question. Yeah. So, let me just pull up. Uh, oh, there's. I've seen Scarlett Johansson both are Oscar nominated performances. So maybe I'd put her up above Faye Bainter. Um. But yeah, I have blind spots with most of these nominees, so I can't really say. So, thank you, Fritz, for agreeing to be on this podcast. I had a wonderful time talking with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I just uh, wanted to ask, do you have, uh, just um, for watching the podcast and watching movies from 1938, do you have a movie that you would say was maybe not good or the worst of the movies that you saw from 1938? Uh, Well... I know I didn't like The Great Waltz, uh, perhaps mainly because of, uh, I don't know how to say her name, Melina Korzijas, I don't know. Yeah, something like this. (laughs) And I just thought the movie was vapid. I'm I'm now getting flashbacks to A Song to Remember, which was a boring biopic from 1945. with Paul Mooney choose the scenery and Cornell Wilde gets the best actor nomination and it was it's one of those strange and boring movies that pops up a, a lot of the times in Academy history mm. and just and just left me scratching my head like how did this happen <laughs> yeah I think my, my my least favorite was um, the adventures of Marco Polo don't know if you if you saw that with Gary Cooper. Oh, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it. 
I thought, okay, big budget production, big story, that might be something, but wow, this was so bad. This looks so incredibly cheap. This was such a bad script. And um, there was one actress in it, Sigrid Guri. I don't know how to pronounce it. She was also in Algier that year. And she played uh, the Chinese princess. And she was just so bad. This was also be my choice for the worst performance of the year. I don't even say because she played a Chinese character. Um, as I said, but it was just such a bad performance. Uh, and the whole movie, uh, I really thought, okay, maybe this is, could be entertaining, but wow, this was, this was really bad. Yeah. Okay, sorry, but I don't want to, just, <laughs> just wanted to ask if... Uh, yeah, no, no worries. So, um... Okay, but again, thank you so much for having me. It was really, it was really fun. It was welcome. really, I, I saw a lot of movies um, I probably wouldn't have seen um, without being on on this podcast. So this was really a great deep dive into into the whole year of 1938. You're very welcome. Thank you back. So and and, and thank you a lot for 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 doing the podcast and and giving so much insight into these different yeah. years. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Just doing what I know is very popular for a lot of people in the film fan community and on film Twitter. Like, if I want to go a little more into this, I started doing these lists when I was like 15, and for some reason I never thought it would take me to this, but here I am. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah. So, how do we find you on social media and your YouTube videos? Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Fritz and Oscars or on my YouTube channel. Also just search uh, for Fritz and the Oscars. That's great. So, um, be sure to follow the Twitter account for the alternate Oscars at alternate Oscars. You can find me on Twitter at Gabe the Joker with two underscores. You can find me on Instagram at Gabe Warren with an underscore. You can find me on Letterboxd at Mr. Fulo. And I'm also a contributor for Keith Loves Movies, and I'm currently writing reviews for two documentaries that I'm forgetting the names of. You'll see when you see. <laughs> so be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake. Subscribe to wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And until next time, Sit back and relax, cheers and enjoy, and thank you for listening to the alternate Oscars.